This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Well, you know, Blair, never in a million years did we think that we would have to address something called pandemic financials. Uh, but here we are, and that's the topic of this segment, how to manage your debt during a pandemic and how to avoid those pitfalls. And if there's anybody around that can explain it to us, I'm pretty sure you're the guy to do it. Well, I'm going to do my best. And yes, Elaine, 2020 has definitely been an unprecedented year. Um, you know, January through February were pretty normal. But yeah, since, since March, um, you know, even all of my staff, we've been working from home. We're still seeing clients, you know, still quite busy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a transformation in how we've, we've assisted our clients just trying to keep everybody safe these days. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the how the, the pandemic's impacting some of the people who are connecting with you and your team? Yeah, so Elaine, there's I, I sometimes summarize it. There's nobody that I'm speaking with who's better off as a result of this pandemic. You know, many, many people are feeling the pinch. And, you know, the government's done, I think, a very respectable job of putting, you know, relief programs in place. Um, you know, creditors have done a good job of coming to the table with payment deferrals. But all of those are temporary solutions, and a lot of them are coming to ends relatively quickly. So we know CERB's been extended a couple of times, but it is looking like it's going to come to an end, you know, this fall. Uh, there'll be a transition to EI, but again, none of those are going to be permanent solutions for folks who've had their income interrupted. Um, and, you know, it's also the case that before the pandemic hit, BC consumers were already in a pretty perilous situation. Um, you know, we saw that insolvencies had risen more than 10% year over year in calendar year 2019 compared to 2018. Uh, and that's a huge increase because the year before they went up 1.8%. Mm-hmm. So it was really accelerating the number of folks who are already, already having trouble with debt. Um, and since the pandemic hit, you know, insolvency filings, bankruptcies and proposals, they've declined pretty significantly. Um, but I think any trustee that you speak to, and certainly myself and our firm here, we think it's just a temporary situation where people aren't better off, um, but they're taking advantage of payment deferrals. They're focusing on what's right in front of them, their necessities of paying the rent, uh, paying the mortgage, you know, sometimes paying down some of the debt. Um, but I think we're anticipating that a lot more folks are going to need our help um, over the next coming months here. And what about a payment deferral? How does that work for folks if that seems to be something that they're using? Yeah, so a payment deferral is where you work out with your creditors and you've, you've got to do this formally. You can't just stop paying and then expect they're going to say, oh, yeah, we'll defer those payments. Um, but a lot of creditors, you know, credit card companies, even mortgage companies, um, you know, they've offered a six-month moratorium on payments. Now, okay. that sounds great, but in general, what happens is they just continue to charge you interest and that gets added to the balance. So, you know, if it's your mortgage, you're going to be paying more in the end because of that extra interest that you didn't pay for the six months. If it's your credit card, well, we know credit card interest rates, um, you know, you've just 
delayed making some payments, but they're still, you know, tacking those interest payments on. Um, what's also interesting as well, and I think that's given people some comfort, um, is the creditor enforcement of debt has been at a standstill since about March. Um, so I wasn't hearing from clients. They were getting a ton of collection calls. Uh, the courts were shut down in every province across Canada. Uh, but that's really flipped, almost like a switch in the last couple of weeks. We're getting a ton of calls from people that collectors are hounding them. The collectors are all working from home now as well, it seems. Um, and with courts being reopened, I've had numerous clients who've been served with legal documents saying they're being pursued for payments and being pursued for a debt through a court system, you know, first off, it's pretty intimidating because most of us, you know, don't know all the ins and outs of what's a criminal offense versus civil. Um, You know, first off, you never go to jail for owing money unless there's just some fraud involved. Um, But, you know, it can be pretty scary to to be served some legal papers, and that's been happening more and more just in these last couple of weeks. So the idea of the standstill on enforcement, that's really come to a close very recently here. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about the pitfalls that you that you want to talk about that are important ones that maybe people are thinking about, but boy, oh boy, at the end of the day, they're not the best the best option for you. What's your number one? Yeah, so I love doing these types of segments, Elaine, because to me, it's navigating the minefield, and these are things that you don't want to step on because they're going to have you know much greater negative consequences than positive consequences. And I think the number one um, idea is the idea of getting a cosigner if you're going to try to consolidate your debt. So I, I speak to people quite often, and they say, you know, I tried to consolidate, get a consolidation loan at the bank, and they wouldn't approve me, but they said, you know, if I brought in husband or wife or mother or father, brother, sister, um, you know, then they would agree if that person agreed to sign on the dotted line. Um, you know, I've, I've said many times, people ask, you know, when is it wise to get a co-signer for a debt consolidation loan? And the answer is almost never. There's almost never a situation uh, where that's going to be a good idea, um, because, you know, first off, the bank might have known something when they're not willing to, to approve you for the consolidation loan. They might have said, you know, you're going to have a bit of trouble paying this back or you're not going to have the assets to support it. Um, so in some cases, you might want to listen to them and say, well, yeah, is that really going to be solving my problem? Is this a payment that I'm going to be able to make? Um, but the other thing is I find people really misunderstand, this is from the borrower and the co-signer point of view, a lot of people co-sign a debt thinking that they're never going to be called to pay the balance. And if they are called to pay the balance, at most it's a 50-50 liability, uh, and that's completely false. So if you co-sign a debt, it's what's called joint and several liability, uh, which means you're responsible for the entire amount. So it doesn't matter if the person doesn't make any payments, the original borrower, the co-signer can be held accountable for 100% of the debt. And I think one final point here is that it really removes some flexibility um, in that in the event that, you know, you get the consolidation loan and you find out you can't pay off that consolidation loan and you need to see a trustee perhaps do a consumer proposal, which is going to cut the debt and give you something you can afford, uh, or to file a personal bankruptcy to get you back to owing nobody anything very quickly, what happens is I can protect the individual who's doing the proposal or the bankruptcy, but I can't do anything to protect the co-signer. That person's agreed to be responsible for the debt, so it can really constrain an individual if they know a consumer proposal is in their best interest, but they know it's really going to hurt a family member or a friend who stepped up to co-sign for them, they can just feel completely you know, trapped in with their options, uh, not wanting to hurt someone who's put their name on the dotted line for them. Got it. And does that include, or can we lump credit, uh, you know, joint credit card accounts or vehicle financing, the same, the same situation plays out there? 
Well, yeah, you want to be careful on both of those, Elaine. So when it's a joint credit card account, you want to look at the cardholder agreement uh, and even look at the statements. If the statements are coming with two persons' names on them, um, then that's basically a joint debt, meaning that if one person doesn't pay the balance, the other person's fully responsible. Um, so even just getting a supplementary card, it can vary from bank to bank or card to card, uh, but there's okay. definitely the potential that just by getting a supplementary card, you could be making yourself responsible for the balance that's outstanding. So most of the time, I recommend that people keep their accounts separate. Um, you know, it's usually just a minor convenience of having a supplementary card. Usually it's just a better idea for the bank. They've got, you know, a couple of customers wrapped up. Um, so I tend to recommend against it. Uh, with vehicle financing as well, um, similar to a consolidation loan, if something goes bad, if that vehicle, um, you know, is repossessed or written off or something, and there's a balance that's owing, um, that co-signer, again, could be held accountable for that. So uh, in general, people should face their debt problems under their own steam, is, is my firm belief. Um, and that's why I've got so much pride in the solutions that we're able to offer. You know, they're Canadian legislated, uh, but they're not based on anybody having to get a co-signer or qualify. You know, everybody's got the right to get relief and, you know, at least investigate those before you try to, to get a co-signer involved. See, and this is one of the reasons uh, why talking with a trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, especially at Sands and Associates, um, they've got all this knowledge and base of knowledge and information and it's fact and it's legal and it's all of those things that you really need when you get into a situation where you're having to deal with your debts. That's why, uh, that's why we do this show and that's why we do these segments. Uh, talking to a real licensed insolvency trustee is really the only way to go. And that includes getting information like this one or number two paying debt with uh your rrsp funds yeah this is probably the number one thing i see that really breaks my heart uh, because you don't have to do that but oftentimes people are counseled into cashing in their rrsps you know maybe it's a friend or family member or even a collection agent or someone at the bank that says you know you probably should pay your debts with your rrsps because if you had to go bankrupt you're going to lose those anyway and well gee 10 or 11 years ago you might have lost them but they've been protected assets for more than a decade now in canada so it's never a good idea to cash in your rrsps for anything other than to fund your retirement. You worked hard to save that money. So if you're contemplating um, cashing in RRSPs to pay debt, it's absolutely a pitfall. Um, you know, oftentimes people don't consider the withholding tax that's going to be, um, you know, held back. And maybe that's not even going to be enough. And they might owe some taxes the next year following. So it can be a really depressing, uh, demoralizing situation where you cashed in your retirement, you still haven't solved the debt problem, then you owe some taxes as well. So definitely it's one of those things. Think twice, think three times, get a lot of advice before you contemplate cashing in your RRSPs. And I think uh, along with that is your is your third one, third pitfall to watch for, and that's getting advice from the wrong source. Yeah, it's really difficult when, when you owe money because you can feel completely alone. And, you know, as much as I can say, I speak to people every day of the week, you know, sometimes six, eight consultations a day, um, and I'm giving people, you know, information they wouldn't get from anywhere else. But a lot of the times people reach out to whether it's friends or family members who are well-meaning but just might not have up-to-date information. Um, you know, even some accountants and lawyers, they don't specialize in insolvency, and the law can change quite a bit. So your best bet is always to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee 
empty. And, you know, sometimes people think, well, do I need a referral? Do I have to pay a fee? And absolutely no. There's no referral required. Um, you know, I often say the hardest thing is just picking up the phone to call us. Um, you know, just give us a call. We often can do a same day or a next day meeting. We're doing everything uh, over Zoom or uh, Microsoft Teams or over the phone these days to keep everybody safe. Um, but there's nobody I speak with who doesn't breathe a sigh of relief, get some information filled in and get some real black and white information instead of the murkiness or gray area that a lot of things can feel like when you're dealing with a debt that you can't pay. And I think it's important too, you know, licensed insolvency trustees, you guys are so regulated uh, by the federal government as to as to what somebody can do to get themselves out of debt. Uh, it's just just a really good reminder for folks. Absolutely, Elaine. We're the only people that are allowed to file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So lawyers can't help you make that filing. Only a trustee can do so. And a trustee is not going to ask you for a retainer or a fee for service. Everything's going to be set by the government tariff. Um, so again, it's probably a much better outcome for people to speak to a trustee first before they exhaust everybody else in the Rolodex and then eventually um, you know, end up a little bit despondent. And we just got just under a minute left here. Um, this is the last one, but I don't think it's the least important one of, of all of the pitfalls we've talked about. And that's having your own financial recovery plan. Well, that's right, Elaine. So we hear a lot about, you know, business opening back up and getting the economy back on track. You've got to think that from your personal capacity as well and really realize that if you're looking at your statements and you're only able to make the minimum payments, you're locking yourself into a plan that's not going to have you recovered anytime soon, maybe not even in this lifetime. So even $1,000 of debt on a credit card can be 10 years of payments. $6,000 could be 40 years of payments. So really look long and hard that you can afford to pay down your debts and try to get things back on track, you know, a calendar of two to three years. If you can't, then you should reach out to a trustee. Yeah, and you can do that a couple of ways. First of all, their website, sans-trustee.com, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this has got to be one of the biggest issues that people face uh, dealing with anything, but especially uh, finances and debt and trying to figure things out at any time in their lives. But certainly financial stress, stress around trying to make bills, trying to keep creditors away, whatever your situation is, the stress that that um, creates is enormous. And, and you guys uh, at Sands & Associates, I know, are so well trained in figuring out where the stresses are, first of all, and then giving some support for folks um, that are trying to get out of debt. So can we talk about some of the, the debt stress impacts that folks are experiencing, Blair, that, that you're talking to, especially during this time? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. And obviously, we're in, you know, difficult times right now with the pandemic. But even absent that, you know, debt stress is not one of these problems you just put into a box and you think about, you know, a few minutes a day, a couple times a week or something like that. Uh, every client that I speak with, they describe their stress as all encompassing. It's from the moment they wake up until they're maybe able to get to a fitful sleep. Um, they just feel overwhelming stress of having obligations that they know they're not able to meet. Uh, and if we're generally honest folks, we want to pay our debts as they become due. And when you can't do that, 
you know, you can have all kinds of feelings of failure, uh, feelings of hopelessness, of powerlessness. You know, we survey our clients every year and we release uh, the, the results publicly. And in our most recent studies, over 90% of participants said it was a constant or daily worry about their debts and their general finances. So literally every day of their life, um, they said they were sleeping poorly, having arguments with spouse or partner, even alienating themselves from family or friends, just not wanting to be around people that would bring them joy. They just didn't feel they deserved that when they're not honoring their obligations. Now, over 70% of people said their self-esteem suffered as a result of being in debt. Uh, anxiety or depression was almost 80% of our clients. And the one that just really shocked me, the, shocked me the first time I've seen it, and now it's been about three solid years, is one in five people have said they contemplated suicide as the solution to their financial problems. So if I ever needed a reminder wow. on why we, why we do what we do, it's to try to reach those one in five to say, you know, there's no situation so severe uh, that should ever be a consideration. There's hope for every financial situation. And I know you've got some good ideas, some good tips for folks to, to help rein in that debt stress early on before it escalates to that really severe state that you've just talked about. Uh, absolutely, Elaine. Uh, you know, a lot of it is fear of the unknown, and the way you deal with that is you just arm yourself with information. Um, but it sometimes starts with just, you know, taking stock of the situation you find yourself in. Uh, so try to what is causing my stress. And if it's finances, you know, is it the case that you stop looking at your bills? You know, you're hiding your account balances from your partner because, you know, it's going to lead to, to some sort of an argument. You know, quite often people, well, our offices were open, they'd bring me in stacks of mail, we'd open it together because they've just been so scared uh, to open their bills for months and months because they just know it's bad news. Um, sometimes people turn to coping strategies like overeating or substance abuse, you know, even overspending or gambling, you know, just trying to win back and, and chase losses. You know, none of these are good for your overall well being in the long term. And sometimes people will neglect their health or even punish themselves with negative self-talk or behavior, just saying, you know, how could I have been so stupid to end up in this situation? And from my experience, you know, very few people get into debt because they're completely stupid or just did bad things. It's because they were doing their best and something happened outside of their control. But that can be very difficult to see. An objective person can see it clearly. But when you're in the eye of the storm, it can really be tough to be objective about your situation. Now, I know that you didn't make a note of this in this segment to talk about, but, um, you know, during this crazy time, this pandemic time that we're all sort of trying to figure things out, can you talk about how you at Sands & Associates uh, talk to your, uh, your clients or people who are wanting information who aren't able to come in and bring their stack of mail with them? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. So as of now, since about March, you know, we've all been working from home to try to keep everybody safe. Uh, so we've been doing all of our meetings by Zoom, um, by Microsoft Teams, by Skype, or by telephone. And, you know, at first I was like, are we going to lose the, the personal touch, the client interaction? I found it's actually better. Um, you know, a lot of people are getting very comfortable. You know, even on your phone, you barely need to download anything to do a Zoom call. Um, and then it can be immediate. You don't have to travel to our office. You don't have to say, oh, I left this at home. I'll bring it next time. Um, so I find, you know, we're able to book people now, same-day meetings, we're able to help people all over the province. Um, so we've been able to expand the, the help we've been able to give to individuals just by offering things remotely right now. Uh, and the need hasn't went down, it, it's increased. A lot of folks are really feeling the pinch right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, your next, your next point was about putting things down in writing as a really good way to deal with the stress. 
Yeah, so again, the idea of taking control of the situation is first you need to know well, what's, what's the, the rules of the game, where do I sit right now? Um, so I encourage people to sit down and list all of the debts with account balances, account numbers, and the payment requirements, just on a single sheet of paper, nothing too technical, uh, and then take a look at the household budget. You know, does that budget balance, is there enough money there for me to be honoring these payments? Uh, if there isn't, well, then that, that's a good indication um, that you're not going to be able to get out of the, this situation under your own steam. Um, even starting to keep track of your income and your actual spending. So a lot of folks that I speak with, um, you know, they're using a credit card that gives them a reward points. they charge everything on it, they try to pay it off at the end of the month, but they've got no idea what they actually spend across various categories. So just tracking things for a month can be just a revelation um, into, you know, hey, 30% of my income is going to my debt payments and I'm not even spending enough on groceries, you know, for a family of two, let alone the family of five that we are. Um, so it can be really important just to track your spending and see where the money goes. You know, it's a case no one is born knowing how to manage their money. No one's born with, with great financial literacy skills. It's a skill anybody can learn, and I believe it's way simpler than most people assume. Uh, and it's something at Sands and Associates, we spend a lot of time trying to coach our clients, counsel our clients so that they can be self-sufficient even after they finish dealing with us. Are there other financial items that, that people uh, forget about and then think, oh, gee, no, I need to include that, or what do I do about this that has sort of a financial connection to it? Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. So there's a couple things that we say you should go one step at a time, and these are, are kind of in priority um, sequence here. The number one is to make sure you're up to date with your taxes. So, you know, it's not the case that the government doesn't know you owe money until you file. They know everything is centralized with CRA. They've got your T4s. Even if you're self-employed, they've probably been able to look at your banking information without your knowledge. Um, but it's really your obligation as a Canadian to file your taxes. And what that does is it gives you access to government benefits you might not have even been aware of. So quarterly GST checks, Canada Child Benefit. Sometimes when I'm dealing with clients and we help them get caught up with their taxes, they actually get a lump sum of a few thousand dollars coming back to them. That helps them solve a lot of the debt problem. And they say, well, why was I so scared to do this? And I say, well, I'm not sure, but I have who we could help. Uh, but sometimes people really have a block with doing their taxes every year. And it's the case. It's just something you've got to do. It gets easier the more that you practice. And the government's done a great job of putting information online if you're missing slips, you can get online access to CRA and do that. Uh, you know, another thing sometimes people feel anxiety about is not having a plan for the future or for contingencies of life. So, you know, if you're up to date on your debts and your taxes, well, consider, do you have enough life insurance if you were to pass on to, you know, to sustain your dependents? Are you saving your TFSA? Do you have an RRSP? You know, those are kind of your next level of financial stability. Uh, and then finally, making sure you have a will written. So, um, you know, dying without a will or intestate, as, as that's called, uh, can just be very difficult if there are assets that you want to pass on to others. Um, so that's another financial as uh, aspect that you'd want to have sorted if, if you're at that point of really being up to date on things. Now, you've listed all the reasons why Sands and Associates and dealing with you guys makes such good sense, licensed insolvency trustee, but there's a piece that you guys offer which I think is really well worth talking about, and you sort of mentioned it early on, when people are feeling alone and overwhelmed by it all, what kind of guidance do you, does Sands and Associates offer folks? Well, you know, we're we're a compassionate place for you to come and discuss your situation. We're going to listen first, seek to understand first, and then give you advice. So it's not that we've got you know two products and they either fit or they don't. It's everybody's situation is unique. Behind every person, there's a family, there's a story, there's a situation that's brought us here. And sometimes when I'm dealing with a client, I can tell I'm the first person they've really opened up to about these finances. And you can just almost see the weight lifting off their shoulders once they can be honest about where they find themselves. So it's really the case of don't go it alone. 
when you see a trustee it's a confidential meeting we're not going to tell anybody we're not going to tell your family members unless you know you want us to speak to them as well um, but in general it's a non-judgmental empathetic uh, ear for you to come to talk about your situation and to get some really good advice on how you can move forward we've been doing it for 30 years and what motivates me the most is when clients call me a few years later and they tell me just how much better their life has become because they've dealt with their debt situation and it started with compassion and understanding you're listening to dollars and cents with blair manton from sands and associates helping you get out of debt Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is a good one because it's really giving you as much information as possible that one segment could about a consumer proposal. And don't feel bad if you haven't heard of what's a consumer proposal or how does it work, because this segment's going to answer those questions, and it's pretty enlightening and pretty interesting. We've got 10 great facts about consumer proposals that you might not have known. Um, I think it's a terrific segment, Blair. Thanks so much for including that in the show. You've talked before that consumer proposals are pretty popular debt solution for Canadians and uh, an alternative to filing a bankruptcy. Um, So let's talk about how many people are using consumer proposals in British Columbia. Yeah, you know, Elaine, I'm happy to give a couple of statistics. I know sometimes people can glaze over with too many statistics, but these ones are so powerful because sometimes can p- people can feel like they're alone, the only people that have debt problems. In calendar year 2019, 140,858 insolvencies were filed across Canada, and of that amount, 60%, so more than the majority, more than bankruptcies, were consumer proposals. So it is the debt resolution option of choice, and that's increased massively in the past number of years when I became a trustee uh, over 10 years ago, it was maybe one in four people were filing consumer proposals. Now it's three in five people. So again, if you're seeing a trustee, uh, you're probably going to find out about a consumer proposal, and that might even be more attractive than a personal bankruptcy, which is what you maybe you thought you were walking into. Uh, in BC last year, 11,000 consumers filed insolvency, 7,000 of those made a consumer proposal. So even a little higher than the national average. So we see guys gravitate towards consumer proposals. They're a great option for people to concern. And again, you're not alone. Over 7,000 of your BC neighbors did that last year. And what do you think the number one reason was that people chose a consumer proposal over uh, a bankruptcy? Well, the idea, first off, is that it's, it's not a bankruptcy. So, you know, nobody feels pride about having to go into bankruptcy, but a lot of people can feel some pride in staring down the toughest financial situation of their life, avoiding a bankruptcy, and making a settlement that they could afford. So, you know, the first of our 10 items today is a consumer proposal allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing. So put all of your debts together. You don't have to get a bank to approve you. There's no minimum credit rating. There's no cosigner required. You put all your debts together, um, and then you also reduce the amount to what you can afford. So you might owe $20,000, but you might be able to pay back $8,000. And oftentimes, that'll be acceptable to your creditors, and you just make those payments over time. You don't need to borrow the consolidated amount. Uh, You just pay it off over time working with the trustee. So that's just huge. It is huge. The other thing that's a bit scary uh, for anyone is looking at interest rates that are charged these days, especially on credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. So how does how does a consumer proposal deal with that? 
Well, how does zero interest sound? That sounds pretty good, right? That sounds so, good. That sounds yeah. really good. Can when I get file, that now? <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, when you file a consumer <laughs> proposal, the day that you sign the document is the last day that you're charged a cent of interest. So regardless of whether it's a payday loan that might be several hundred percent interest, it's just insane. If it's a credit card at 20% interest, or even if the government charges you interest on your taxes, when you sign a consumer proposal, you don't pay another dollar of interest. The debts stop growing. They stop moving away from you. And it's just a matter of how much can you afford to repay on that amount, but no further interest gets charged. So that's just really powerful. Very, very powerful. Can you give us some um, ideas or facts about how you qualify for a a consumer proposal that people may not know? So some people think you have to be in just horrible financial shape. You have to owe $100,000 or more to consider a consumer proposal. The average person that files a consumer proposal, they owe in the range of about thirty dollars to $50,000 of unsecured debt. So it might be a student loan, some income tax debt, some credit card debt. Um, but you could file a consumer proposal with as little as $1,000 of debt. Now, most people don't file a proposal that for that small amount of debt. You might be kind of using a sledgehammer to crush a fly. Um, but oftentimes, people that have a five or $6,000 debt, but it's owed to a payday lender or a cash store or something where they know next year it's probably going to be double. They're filing consumer proposal these days to stop all the interest and to pay back what they can afford. So the minimum is 1000 The maximum is 250000 So even if it is a very dire situation, but you've got the income to be able to pay back, you know, maybe a third or a quarter of even a big number, a consumer proposal is a great option for you to consider. So it's very wide ranging, the amount of debts that can be included. Um, and again, you don't need to have a great credit rating or anything to qualify, you just need to be able to show you're going to be able to make those those minimum payments. Got it. What about income or an income cap? Yeah, there's no income cap when you do a consumer proposal. Now, the amount you have to pay back on your debts is driven by your ability to pay. So if I'm dealing with somebody who's earning $2,500 a month, uh, what they're going to pay back on their debt is a whole lot different than someone that's earning $10,000 a month. And believe it or not, we do have those clients. Sometimes the doctors, the lawyers, um, they can get in trouble just like everybody else. Um, So if you're filing a consumer proposal, your income is not a limit, um, but just be prepared that you're probably going to be able to afford to pay back more of the debt. So it might be you're going to pay back 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, or the best benefit's going to be the interest freeze. But either way, you're going to get relief on your debts, and you're not going to be precluded just because you're high income. And a lot of times, people might be high income now, but they say, well, I'm not sure if that's going to last. Um, so when you're in a consumer proposal, if you lock in a payment that's affordable now, if your situation does change, you can amend the proposal downwards to suit your new circumstances. Okay. So what about your assets? How do they play in a consumer proposal? And that's one of the major differences between a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy. In a bankruptcy, when you file a bankruptcy, you're theoretically going to surrender some assets. Now, most people don't have assets that they lose in a bankruptcy because, you know, furniture and clothing and tools of the trade are all exempt. Uh, but sometimes people have an RESP, for example, an education savings plan for their children. If they file for bankruptcy, that might have to be collapsed and paid to creditors, which is just heartbreaking for everybody involved, including the trustee. When you file a consumer proposal, you automatically keep all of your assets. So you making a proposal does not require you to surrender any assets. There's no vesting of assets in the trustee. Uh, You even continue to get your tax refunds as well, whereas if you had filed for bankruptcy, if you're going to get an income tax refund, that has to come to the trustee. If you're in a proposal, you keep control of all of your assets. All that's happened is that a trustee has stepped in the middle between you and your creditors and has worked out a reasonable compromise on what you can afford to repay, but your assets are free and clear and they're safe. 
You know, I know that we touch on so much good information in these segments, and and sometimes it can be a bit too much uh, information. But if you want to actually talk to somebody about your debt, ask your questions, even if you're not for sure that you need real help or or serious help at this point, but just want to run down or run through a few things and and get it checked out, give Sands & Associates a call, 1-800-661-3030. And as Blair mentioned already in these segments, uh, you know, they're set up to deal with you on the phone, on the phone or in a video call, a video chat, uh, to just to, to suss out all the good information, um, so that you can move forward and hopefully feel better about your situation and with some hope involved. Um, what are some of the facts about different debts that can be consolidated within a consumer proposal? Does it include everything? Well, just about, Elaine. So it's easier to say what it does include than what it doesn't. Um, so just about every common consumer debt, like a credit card, an overdraft, a line of credit, you know, even a payday loan. Um, also government debt, so income taxes, student loans, even ICBC debt or MSP debt, not to throw too many acronyms, but I think most of our listeners know what those mean, and they're generally not good. Uh, basically, any consumer debt that you have can be consolidated and reduced in a consumer proposal. And with these government debts that I've just mentioned, a consumer proposal is actually the only way for you to get a compromise on these amounts. So if you owe the government money for taxes, they're not going to agree to half payment and no interest over a period of a few years. They're going to say we want full payment with interest within six months. So when you access a consumer proposal, you're able to consolidate and reduce virtually all types of your debts. The only exclusions that that a and sometimes come up is things that you would think shouldn't be included. So things like alimony or child support or payments uh, where, you know, that's an obligation that no one should be able to reduce except for a court. But otherwise, any standard consumer debt can be reduced in a consumer proposal. And I just want to throw in here that a licensed insolvency, a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that can facilitate a consumer proposal, no matter what you've heard or who tells you what. Really important to remember as you listen to these segments and and try to figure out the best course of action to take. What about the maximum of years that it takes to uh, to pay off your debt or to or to deal with it, Blair? Yeah, so this can be life-changing, Elaine, because a lot of folks, they've taken to looking at their credit card statements, and, you know, even $6,000 of debt can show a 40-year payment term at minimum payments. Uh, you know, that's not good for anybody other than the people that are collecting those payments. A consumer proposal, by law, it can't extend past five years. So if you do a proposal, let's say you reduce the debt to a third of what you owe, you're going to make payments of $200 a month over 60 months, say for 12000 on about a thirty-five dollars or $40,000 debt. You can take the maximum term of up to five years, Um, or if things get better for you, you can start to pay extra, you can pay it off early with no penalty, but the maximum term is going to be five years, and most people finish their proposals within about two to three years, um, and their credit can start to rebuild very quickly thereafter. So it's not the never-never plan, make payments forever and never be out of debt. Uh, It's a plan that has a defined end date of when you will be debt-free, and you can accelerate that end date just by paying it off a little bit more quickly. And how does it impact, you mentioned credit, how does it impact your credit history doing a consumer proposal? Well, it's not as severe as a bankruptcy would be, but any time you don't pay your debts in full, your credit takes a hit. So a consumer proposal actually reflects the same as if you went to, say, a not-for-profit credit counselor and you agreed to pay off all the debt in full, but they got you a break on the interest down to zero. Now, with the proposal, you're going to get the interest down to zero, but you're not going to pay off all the debt. You're going to pay off maybe a third, a quarter, or something in that range. So what's going to happen with your credit rating is six years from the day you sign that proposal, it disappears off your record. 
So if you have a five-year proposal, a year after you finished your payments, it's like it never happened. And you can start rebuilding your credit almost as soon as the proposal is approved. Uh, we give you a couple counseling sessions that are very important. Um, you're going to talk about getting a secured credit card, about having the right financial habits. Um, that's going to help you rebuild your credit very quickly. Now, and we've just got just a little over a minute left in this segment. Are there a couple of more things that you want to make sure you mention on the consumer proposal, Blair? Yeah, I think the one thing that really surprises individuals, I often get this question either at the beginning or at the end of a meeting, is, well, how does a trustee get paid? And what's your fee on top of this? And the answer is there's no fee on top of what you can afford to offer in a consumer proposal. So if you're paying $200 a month as part of your proposal, that includes the trustee fees, that includes the filing fees, the counseling fees, everything like that. It's all set by government tariff. Every consumer proposal in Canada is the same. So you don't need to worry about getting a separate bill for service. It costs you nothing to explore the option. And once we work out a payment term, essentially your creditors are paying the cost, you're paying the trustee, nothing extra. And the key is a licensed insolvency trustee. They're the only ones that are going to be able to facilitate this consumer proposal. So now that you've got the facts, you can get your own debt-free plan. Connect with an expert, a debt expert at Sands & Associates. Give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Government Debt Forgiveness. And uh, I, the first thing when I read this, I thought, okay, is there such a thing? And in fact, there is. And, and Blair's uh, the perfect guy to give us sort of a basic overview of some common government debts that can be forgiven or consolidated or reduced. Uh, but the key here is you want to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee to do that work. Am I right, Blair? I think I you're, am, right? You're absolutely correct, Elaine. The folks take nothing <laughs> else away from this segment. Just that idea that there is hope, there is opportunity, you know, tax debts, student mm-hmm. loans, all these other things we're going to talk about, none of them have to be life sentences. And, you know, we get a lot of our news from down south where they've exempted tax debt and student loans specifically. If you go bankrupt, you're going to owe those uh, even after the bankruptcy. Um, but in Canada, government debts can be dealt with, but you've got to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee. You've got to understand all the facts about them. Um, And I'm excited for this segment because we're going to go through a bunch of different categories uh, of government debt and tell you how each one would be treated if you do need to restructure them. Um, But we know it's a scary thing when you owe the government money. Uh, We know, you know, they've got more collection arms, uh, more collection activities that they can do almost without warning. So uh, it's no picnic when you're in debt to the government, but definitely take hope based on today's segments that there are solutions available. Now, I'm sure that there's one, uh, one that's more common, one government debt that's more common than the other. Which one is it? Well, absolutely, that's tax debt. So you can imagine all of our friends at, at CRA, and I know they're, they're you know, good people trying to do a tough job there, uh, but when you get behind with a tax man or a tax woman, it can be very difficult to get out from under that burden because there's interest, there's penalties, uh, and then what happens when you owe CRA is if you're not making the payments that they want you to make, which is usually payment in full within six months of when they assess a balance, you know, they can start aggressive collection activities virtually overnight. Um, they can start seizing wages, usually up to 30%. They they can even seize pensions, which I was quite surprised to see, but it does happen. Um, you know, they can also put liens on assets, 
I know usually they won't do that unless it's a pretty severe situation, but it's also the case with some debts. You can kind of wait them out. You can say, okay, well, unless they sue me, you know, it's not going to really impact my life too much, but the government doesn't have to sue you. They can do these things without a court action, and there's no expiry. There's no statute of limitations on government debt. So if you owe the government money for income taxes, for GST, for corporate tax, um, if you've got an issue with CRA, that's when you'd want to start dealing with the trustee. Um, because what we can do immediately is we can stop all of the interest, we can stop any of the wage garnishments, we can stop any of the asset seizures and prevent them from starting again as long as you're under the protection of a, of a trustee. And there's a couple of remedies you can use to reduce or eliminate that debt as well. Okay, do you want to mention those right now or should we move on to the next one? Well, let's talk a little bit. So, yeah, if you owe government debt, uh, again, for income taxes, we talk GST and corporate tax, the two ways you can restructure those are either through a personal bankruptcy. And, again, a lot of people think if you go bankrupt, you still owe the government money. That's absolutely not the case. If you're under $200,000 of tax debt, which, believe it or not, I see a bunch of people who are over that, um, but under $200,000 of tax debt, uh, it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that if you successfully complete your personal bankruptcy, the tax debt will be discharged. If it's over two hundred thousand dollars it's still highly likely you're not going to have to owe that tax debt in the future but there is going to be a court hearing where the judge is going to want to hear well how did the tax debt arise and what steps have you taken to deal with it but as long as you know you face things honestly you're not going to have any issues there and if it's a situation where you can afford to make a reduced payment to CRA but it's just the interest is killing you the penalties and the total amount is too high a consumer proposal can absolutely consolidate reduce all of your debts which could include CRA as well so you can avoid bankruptcy, pay no interest and pay back what you can afford on the tax debt, which is often in the range of, you know, maybe 25 to 50 percent of the amount outstanding. Got it. I was, uh, I'm always intrigued when this comes up because I never think about this as being a government, uh, a government debt, but the medical services plan debt, how does that work for people or against them? Yeah, so that's another government debt. And, you know, great thing in, in BC, as of January 1st, 2020, all MSP premiums were eliminated. But if you had an unpaid balance, if you hadn't paid for a period of a few years, um, that still remains payable. And all of those strict government collection activities that I talked about, you know, you could still be subject to those. Now, what's really important is sometimes people have an MSP debt assessed against them because they haven't filed their taxes for a number of years. And once they file their taxes, the uh, government will see they were actually low in income and the retroactive premium assistance program will will start to kick in. So if you're facing an MSP debt, first make sure your taxes are, are filed up to date. But second, understand you have complete options uh, to deal with MSP debt the same as every other government debt as well. See, and that's, again, uh, really the, the best reason or one of the many re- good reasons to to deal with, to go and see a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair Manton at Sands and Associates because they have all this knowledge, this base of knowledge, and they have no personal investment in it other than making sure that you know that you have everything you could possibly need to know in order to go forward and to deal with this debt, whether it be government debt or and all the different facets of government debt or any kind of debt. So I, I, I just wanted to throw that in. So what other... Um, uh, what can you tell us about dealing with debts for government benefit programs, uh, be, uh, government benefits or programs, Blair? How does that yeah, work? So- 
Well, if people, a lot of people have a fear that if they restructured a government debt, they might not be eligible for future government benefits. Um, you know, maybe they depend on a disability benefit or a social assistance, and they're just worried, oh my God, if I write off this tax debt, is the government going to say, oh, we're not going to send you any more money in the future? Um, and that's an unfounded fear. So just because you had to file a bankruptcy or a proposal, you're protected. You can't be discriminated against if you're entitled to government benefits. You would continue to get those going forward. And a lot of the times, uh, there's an incredible breathe of, uh, breathing of a sigh of relief because someone might have had their government pensions being seized partly by CRA or something like that. And when they file a bankruptcy or a proposal, suddenly they start to get the full pension as, again because the trustee is able to lift that seizure. So don't be concerned about being ineligible in the future if you've got to restructure your debts in the short term. Now, I know there's a couple that other types important. of debts. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go finish up. Finish the thought, oh. please. Thank you. I was going to say, there's a couple other debts that, you know, sometimes we run into, and these are a little bit less common than the two that we've talked about, um, but EI overpayment. So that's something where you're on EI, and maybe there was an application error, or you failed to report something, you're also earning income, and you got overpaid something. Um, that's an amount that can become due and payable, and again, subject to some collection activities. Now, this one can be a little bit of a gray area. I've seen it go in a couple of ways. Uh, if the government takes the view that there was fraud involved, meaning it's crystal clear that you, know, you knew you were earning income, you knew you were getting benefits you weren't entitled to, um, sometimes the government can argue, well, that's a debt that should survive a bankruptcy proceeding. But in the vast majority of cases, if there's an honest um, like explanation of how this overpayment occurred, it is a debt that a trustee can help you deal with. Okay. How about social assistance overpayment? Those generally forgiven in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Okay. And student loans, we know those, uh, lots of people have student loans outstanding. Yeah, student loans is definitely a common one that we see, and there's a couple really important things. Uh, the magic number with student loans is it has to be seven years since you were last a student for you to be able to restructure your student loan in full through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So the government wants you to make a really good faith effort to earn income to get value from your schooling, but if seven years have passed since you were last a student, a student loan becomes like every other debt. It can be discharged or written off completely in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Uh, there's a provision in the law that if it's been more than five years, so not quite seven, but more than five, um, there is still a possibility of you getting your student loan um, discharged in full, but you have to make an extra court application after you've finished either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Um, so quite often I see people where it's been, you know, six and a quarter years or six and a half years, and I say, well, waiting that extra six or nine months, that's going to be night and day to you having all of your problems solved from a financial point of view uh, or having that student loan come out the other side, you still owe the balance. So, uh, definitely the seven-year rule is what's important, but again, take hope that it's not a 70-year rule. Uh, it's a reasonable amount of time uh, where the government just wants to see, are you going to be able to get value from this student debt? And if not, they would allow it to be discharged as well. Good. And I don't want to finish off this segment without mentioning ICBC debt for folks. Yeah, and I know we were just bumping up on time, but ICBC debt in almost all cases would be forgiven under either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Uh, your trustee will contact ICBC, make sure they understand the substance of the debt. It's only if there's alleged fraud, if there's intentionally inflicted bodily harm or wrongful death, that's when you might have an issue. Otherwise, just about every ICBC debt can be dealt with by a trustee. Great. And for information on any of these things in more depth, if you're not ready to talk to somebody yet, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's chock block full of great resources for you. Or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 and get that first consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.